This week on FX Guide TV. We take a look at the new Adobe CS55 Production Premium, including an in-depth look at some of the tech behind the tools. Listen more, coming up next. Hello and welcome to FX Guide TV, I'm Angie. Well, there was so much excitement at NAB this year, we have one more special show for you. NAB saw a lot of new announcements and just a few surprises. Well, thanks, Ange. One of the companies that made a big splash here at NAB is Adobe with the launch of the new 5.5. Yeah, John Montgomery sat down with multiple people at the show to find out all about this new release. Well, thanks, guys, for that. One of the main things about this release, this dot release 5.5, is that they wanted to update the video applications, the ones in production premium, uh, as opposed to update the entire suite because things are changing so rapidly, effectively, in our industry. So we've got new versions of Premiere, as well as After Effects, plus Adobe Audition comes to Mac for the first time. It's an audio application basically replacing Soundbooth on the Mac platform. Now one really interesting thing that I think is really cool about what Adobe has done is introduced a new subscription-based pricing pattern. And basically what it allows you to do is actually access the new versions, basically renting them by the month. So you can either just get an entire year subscription for one price and see so your price breaks down to say $49 a month for After Effects, if you buy the entire year, or you can even buy it month by month, at which point you pay a little bit higher, but just for a month of After Effects, 80 bucks, and you can buy it effectively a la carte, which is great if you have a bunch of people coming in, freelancing, or need to ramp up for a project. One of the other great things about it is that you can actually read 5.5 projects in version 5.0 and vice versa. So you've got a little bit of backwards compatibility for the first time, and those of you in the industry know that's really uncommon when people come out with a new software release. One of the interesting things I think has happened in the last year since CS5 came out is you're hearing a lot more about Premiere Pro being used for editing. And whether that's because there hasn't been a new version of Final Cut for a while, or people are just trying again for the first time, I personally feel it's because they're really concentrating on making Premiere Pro interesting to the professional users. And that's one of our longtime friends at FX Guide, Bill Roberts, who's now at Adobe. Is this an intentional targeting of the professional market? There's definite blurring between the line. You know, what is a you know a, a prosumer, a consumer? Uh, our, our focus is definitely trying to provide you know the best tools for creativity, and you know I think that if that leans towards professional, you know so be it. But I think that certain trends are kind of inevitable. You know, we look at you know um, capture resolutions going up. I think you know the size is no longer the limit. Um, the next barrier is you know bit depth and uh, uh, high dynamic range. So these are things I think if you focus on those, they are going to trickle down over time. So your market does grow. And everybody does have aspirations to move up. And I think in the new broadcast economy, the lines are much more fuzzier. You know, you can actually, you know, do something at a very low price point now and deliver it at a professional quality. So I, you know, I wouldn't say it's as black and white as we're developing for the professional. Now, taking a look at the products, I mean, I think it'd be fair to characterize maybe for CS5, Premiere Pro wasn't really seriously considered a high-end editing tool, but there's been a lot of traction. What have you seen out there as far as the adoption and interest in it? It, it, really has, it really has grown, and I think that you know, some of the adoption is sort of by some of the big flagship uh, um, you know, uh, wins that we've had, you know, with you know, BBC dropping in you know, an additional 2,000 seats and a lot of other big broadcasters putting it in as their primary editing tool. That gave it the validation for people to come back to it and have a look at it, but the truth of the matter is the team had been working steadily at you know, removing all the barriers that prevented people from working on it. Uh, most recently, a big push to make it easier if you've been an FCP or a media composer user to jump across and start to use it. 
Um, and then picking areas where we really wanted to have something special. So we think the Mercury engine is something where you can get all that performance working with the native files. So there's a unique reason to go there, the barriers have been broken down, and we have some other reference wins too. So I think it's just a sort of a combination of all those things, but adoption's been incredibly strong. Uh, and more importantly, usage, because quite often, you know, Premiere Pro would be included in the suite. Right. So it was there, but people weren't using it. So now more and more people are turning to it and using it as their primary tool. It seems to be, from my standpoint, potentially getting problematic, because you're starting to lose a bit of parity with the uh, with Premiere and the Windows PC, especially on the mobile platforms, like the Elite Books got the NVIDIA graphics card in it. Mm -hmm. But now, the MacBook Pro line is devoid of anything that can actually use the Mercury playback engine. Well, yeah, there, yeah, there's a big well. So basically, you've got the GPUs, and then you've got the uh, the software, you know, enablement stack that sits on top of it, CUDA versus OpenCL. So in the past, you know, what's been in the MacBooks, um, if you went through OpenCL, doing the work wasn't going to be interesting enough. With this latest version, we're starting to get into the zone of interest. Like the the raw GPU is powerful enough, and the OpenCL uh, software layer is getting mature enough that it's starting to get interesting. So the Mercury playback engine is designed not only to take advantage of GPU but CPU and look at the overall environment and optimize it. So we run really well on the new MacBooks. Uh, no, we're not doing GPU optimization on it right now, but it's something now it's starting to get in the zone where it's getting interesting for us. And we do want Mercury to stand for performance on any platform, so that's something we'll be looking at moving forward. Yeah, and that's actually, I should say, that's also a specific GPU feature. There are things that are GPU accelerated across the product line that work on both Mac and PC without problem. Exactly, exactly. There's some of those that are like that, and uh, if you're on a workstation Mac, no problem. You can, you know, get an NVIDIA card and put that in. Uh, I think the new, um, the MacBook Pro platform is interesting, though. We actually have uh, Thunderbolt on the show floor. We've got a promised disk drive connected by Thunderbolt actually working, uh, and that's really exciting, because that technology actually just gets the data into memory and you know, allows us to work really fast. So that, that technology, which we're you know, pleased is on the MacBook Pros, takes you know, the raw horsepower of Premiere Pro and really shows it. We'll actually be showing you some stuff recorded earlier at the NAB show of Premiere Pro running on a MacBook with Thunderbolt. It's really pretty amazing, as well as talking to other manufacturers, such as AJA and GTEC about their technology. That's coming up in a future FX Guide TV episode. Now, I mentioned the Mercury playback engine, which of course is in this elite book that I've really become fond of having that 5000M mobile processor. And I got to say, even though Bill uh, it's a, mentioned it's a multi-part thing, Premiere Pro really does run more efficiently uh, utilizing the 5000M that's in here versus even the new current generation of MacBook Pros. They've even actually updated this to have the 5010, which has more memory and is even faster. So again, hopefully we'll see more developments, maybe more some more uh, Quadro cards on the Mac platform as well. All right, well, let's get on into diving into features. And I sat down with Mark Christensen, who's author of the After Effects Studio Techniques series of books. He's also teaching a new course for us, or an effects PhD this term, uh, doing effects for the short concept film Project Arbiter. Uh, so if you've seen that, check over uh, at fxphd.com to check that out. But basically, I want to find out some of his favorite features in the new software. And actually, it wasn't really surprising. Uh, that one of his new favorite features had to deal with more realistic optical camera blurs. I don't know about you, I like bokeh a lot. <laughs> yeah. And you've been able to produce it in After Effects, but it required a couple of third-party plugins that are available, um, somewhat slow and even unstable. Mm -hmm. um, and so now what you have is camera blur not only in the form of a property, a, a, an effect, Right. 
just learning my After Effects nomenclature, <laughs> right? And uh, so you have an effect that you can apply it to a layer, and of course you can use uh, a mat to, you know, for example, do a rack focus with a grayscale mat, just as you would expect. But it's actually built right into the After Effects camera, and in fact, it is all you do is switch it on, and you've got with any you know 3D comp that you create, you can have bokeh land happening. Yeah. And in fact, what I've found is if you combine that, maybe work in 32-bit, crank up the lights a lot, get some nice bloom, and really you know, get the aperture up high, you can create abstract art with it's that. It's a big difference from the previous blur, which is we were yeah. talking before, it's kind of like a tell in what you might see in After Effects. You're gonna, well, that's the thing. So much work that you see out there is done in After Effects. I mean, so many TV commercials, for example. And you, you can tell you know, when it's the kind of Postcards in space type of 3D, and you know there's certain tells, and one of them has been if people, well, often people wouldn't do soft focus, mm -hmm. and then if they did, and they used, the, you know, if they made the mistake of using the built-in cameras, it was just a plain old blur. Yeah, well, I think one place where another new feature that's really interesting is uh, the new uh, camera warping and fixing of yeah. camera moves and so forth. Right. I definitely know you've used that way more than I have, but I was really, I was quite impressed with it. It's not a magic bullet, but what your, what's your perception been? It can actually be fairly magical. It's not always flawless. It's correct. A couple of things about it. One, uh, it is a little bit black box, black box in how it's initially applied. You just sort of turn it on and it goes to work and then you see what you got. Yeah, now what happens actually when you turn it on is it actually goes back and in the background you actually get this kind of It will work in the background. It which goes is really in cool. and figures everything out, analyzes it under the hood. Yeah, and there's no, you don't have to set anything. There's no figuring out where your tracking markers go or any of that. So it's modern in that sense. It just doesn't give you any data that you can use, I mean in an effects context for example, it's not abnormal to want the stabilization data and do other things with it or even you know to do something really clever like lock off a shot and then reintroduce some of the motion right. and that stuff is not exactly how they intended this to be designed. So pretty great though and definitely I mean I think Adobe is they've been ambitious in terms of really rolling their R&D into some new tech Right. Now, you mentioned it being kind of about black box. What kind of things that don't work? Now, I can imagine some like fast-moving objects where you don't really have any in-between data or something like that, you know, where it's got to really make up too much information. Right. Well, uh, first of all, any stabilization by default will scale your shot up. And the scaling can sometimes be a bit higher than you might want, ideally. You have control over that. Uh, but you're reintroducing motion unless you let it actually try to guess about the edges of the frame and fill them in from adjacent frames. Now that's where you really start to see, you know, if it doesn't work right, and you know, I as, see you, a lot of as you would, in that, actually, right, you'd see ripply, you know, weird quantization and bad guesses. And of course, it's going to happen at the top and tail of the shot. And of course, you know, it'll happen if the motion is so crazy that it. It doesn't have anything to work with. I would say, by and large, if you shoot with this in mind, and you do your best not to go right. too crazy, like you can't just be like, "Oh, I got stabilization later. I'm just gonna have a exactly. few drinks and you know, or caffeine or whatever your drug of choice is, and then you know, go nuts." You wouldn't want to do that. But if you, you know, honestly, we've all tried it. Well, maybe not all of us, but you and I have certainly tried keeping a 5D or whatever yeah. steady by hand. It's it's impossible. So in fact. If you're trying and you really, if you had to pick up the camera and just take an interview and you didn't have a tripod and you want it to look professional, you could lock that shot off.
pretty yeah. convincing. Yeah, and I do like also the ability to you know do the amount as smooth as you want. You don't have to have it totally smooth. You can keep some of that yep. original movement, and sometimes that works better yeah. anyway for the shot, so, especially when you're talking about filling in the edges. Right. Which doesn't work as well in a lot yeah. of cases. So, I mean, I'm a nerd and I say the old ways still apply. You know, I'm not totally went over to the, the new black box, but there have been already situations where it's been really helpful. Well, what, name one other good feature. Now, I'll well, the light, one, okay. fall off lighting goes hand in hand yeah. with the camera blur. You know, you've, an After Effects light in the past has had no fall off. So now you could, you can actually do inverse square lighting. So with that combo, the thing I was t saying before, I think the cocktail that I like now is to introduce some overbrights by either using a bunch of lights or maybe cranking one up, give it some fall off, give them some fall off, so you get this really natural kind of effect. You can control the radius, which is effectively the size of the light. And um, you can also use linear fall off, so you can actually say I want it to fall off here. So you can also make a light stop right where you want it, so you can also do very specific stuff. It's stuff that you would you know, expect to do in most any 3D app, and After Effects just hasn't had it. And it's it's a great addition, and yeah, those two together. I'm surprised you didn't say timecode support. Timecode support is surprisingly time cool. Code, you know, and that is so elementary, and yeah, you know, it's a mist it's one of those things. Like, why didn't we have this sooner? But and it's even there for DPX, which yeah. was really a frustration because that one's even like getting it for QuickTime always seemed like a no-brainer, but it's actually there for quite a few formats. We used to develop a lot of scripts where you would actually take the sequence numbers to re-embed the timecode at the end of the After Effects render. Yeah. So it is one of those or you're time. adding numbers in your head. I mean, it's painful. It's not, yeah, so now, those now, days are... As the guy who wrote the book on After Effects, literally, um, let's talk about the future. Where, what would you like, like what would be, where would you like to see them go with it? Maybe not a future thing, but right. potentially. But yeah. Well, I, I'd like to see more robust 3D. Uh, just, you know, more different things that you can do in 3D. And I mean, looking over at, say, Nuke, mm -hmm. that is one area where that application is firing on all cylinders, right. you know. And so right now there's a big divide of what you can do, uh, particularly if you want to use an actual model, but even just real 3D shapes, mm -hmm. you know. There are workarounds, but they're all workarounds, and it's, it's become, you know, kind of a whole stack of workarounds. So that would be a great one to... Yeah, I talk that all the time, coming from the flame background and where we use that all the time, but especially even motion graphics. I think from all standpoints, from compositing to motion graphics, just a really solid 3D environment, not this kind of Frankenstein at times, 2.5D to 3D environment, really opens up to creative yeah. potential. Yeah. I mean, I'd also like to see them revisit some things like Rotobrush, and you know, it feels like it's got great tech in it. And you know, what happens so often is the feature comes out and then it lays dormant. So that that was the case with 3D. They had a huge advantage when they rolled that in, but that was way back in like AE5, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. And so it's been yeah, you know, that's a decade ago that that came to us. So and it, and it hasn't changed. Much the lighting is great, the new camera stuff is great, and I like to see them keep going with that. I also like to see more user-friendly things mm -hmm. happening in it. I think there's so much great stuff you can do workflow-wise with scripts, and they are right now only reaching the nerds, like yeah. only people. Even at facilities, I notice people being a little lazy about going and getting a script to do something. That could be much better, but um, just more. I think anytime something's become either shareable or something where you give people a way 
to create, like the equivalent of a gizmo in mm -hmm. new, like create something useful and hand it to somebody. More ability to do that kind of stuff would be a huge boon to it. One other area where I'd like to see some enhancement is actually dynamic link. I think Adobe has a chance to totally kill it as far as interop goes. I mean, if you think about it, they've got great interop between After Effects, Illustrator, and Photoshop. They've got dynamic link between Premiere, a basically timeline-based system, and a shot-based system like After Effects via dynamic link. The problem is, and I was talking about this with Tim Kolb earlier today, uh, he's teaching a Premiere Pro course for our Silver FX PhD, and he's just simply a long-time Premiere Pro uh, user, is that you can actually start getting bogged down. I mean, you could be working Premiere and firing off multiple instances of After Effects rendering in the background. You could have jobs in Adobe Media Encoder running as well. It can basically start to fight for resources like RAM and CPU. So it would be really great if we had ways to manage what gets allocated to what from a user standpoint. Just to kind of put a kibosh on stuff. You know, I want all of my horsepower on the creative app and don't worry as much about the background applications. But I think Adobe is really well aware of how strong Dynamic Link is. I had the opportunity to sit down with Steve Ford, who, by the way, is another been a fan of at FX Guide over the years, a longtime member of the After Effects community with the cool stuff he was doing at Gridiron Software. I'm really happy to see him as senior product manager at After Effects now. But I asked him about this idea of dynamic link and kind of balancing the very different workflows that an artist in After Effects might have versus an editor in Premiere. If you take like our warp stabilizer, uh, that's part of CS55. Um, you know, there is, it works in the background, fantastic. Um, but again, you know, being able to apply that in terms of the artistic effect in real time that, you know, an editor demands is a different technology problem. So dynamic link is, is critical, you know, from my perspective in terms of allowing an editor to easily get into After Effects. Because I mean, After Effects is, is it's a very deep app. You, you have to um, understand what you're doing. And so the nice thing is, like say with Stabilizer, is that via Dynamic Link, you can be in Premiere Pro, replace your, your clip with an After Effects composition, and because Stabilizer, as an example, is drag and drop, it's a very easy way of being introduced uh, to After Effects from that side. So things like Dynamic Link are critical uh, from my perspective. Um, I think that you know, the interoperability between our applications and our suite is one of the reasons why overall after Effects, again, is, is, is revered very highly by its user base, but at the same time, you're starting to see a lot of really good traction with Premiere Pro and with, again, with Audition. And we're going to make some advancements, I would imagine, in the future on that front. But that's our story. That's the whole point of a production workflow, is to be able to say it goes from in to out, and you're dealing with all components, motion graphics, visual effects, editing, and, and audio, and going from there. So I think, you know, going back to Dynamic Link, that is, that is absolutely, you know, in my mind, critical to what we're doing, um, and especially in the collaborative workflow, uh, that an After Effects person works with others as part of that. Yeah, and especially because I don't think there's a common UI that could be shared as easily between an application like After Effects and editing that would make both groups happy. No. And that the dynamic <laughs> link is actually a shrewd way of using the best of both worlds. Well, it's an apples and oranges, yeah. right? So, I mean, a motion graphics and visual effects artists you know, I mean, think about, you know, 3D space and, you know, and try to really bring that in with a lot of control that the way you have that in After Effects into an editor. I mean, that, that would be very difficult to do and probably would be lost, you know, from a, from a, a skill set perspective on the, you know, the expertise that an editor has. So, you know, really when you look at it, you know, After Effects is very good about going into um, uh, giving creative control for a, a fine grain level 
uh, for some very specialized ways of doing content. Being able to bring that seamlessly into the edit, and that's another thing that's part of CS55 that we added, was timecode support uh, within After Effects, so that it can more seamlessly work with the editor or in your own edit session between Premiere Pro, obviously, or other editors and so forth, because it's listening to the, the timecode in the source uh, from that perspective. So, you know, link inter interoperability between the apps and jumping back and forth, it's all, it's all really important to a workflow that, that also can branch off and be very specialized. We talked a little bit last year about this time as well, about kind of the investment also in research and so forth mm -hmm. at Adobe and image processing technology. I mean, it seems you've introduced several things in the past releases. I know you're new there, but it's like, what kind of investment is there in that kind of image processing research at the company? I, I, honestly, I think it's huge. I mean, now, take it with a grain of salt because I'm on week seven. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, you know, having known the After Effects team for a long time, um, you know, they, they use a, a really cool acronym that I love. It's, they're called the, the uh, GPBs, the Giant Pulsating Brains, that essentially uh, they came up with things like content-aware fill for Photoshop. Um, Warp Stabilizer was worked on by some of the same folks. Um, and it didn't, you know, even opening the kimono and saying this is where the research came from, uh, which you can see in the blogs and do, you know, a search from that perspective. It's really important. I think that there's... Uh, uh, notion within the After Effects team, you know, in terms of what we're able to do, kind of giving the After Effects user, you know, their life back 30 seconds at a time, um, by doing the method like what we did with Stabilizer, being able to do things in the background from a performance perspective, but at the same time try to take a lot of the mystery out of the technology, and that means it has to be hefty innovation uh, on our side uh, to be able to deliver a new technology like that with that kind of user experience. I got to say, I'm a big fan that Adobe is investing in image processing research. And I think it's really critical moving forward to companies such as Adobe to do that kind of research in order to bring technology into our hands with tools that make our job easier as artists. Now, I'll give you a bit of hint if you want to know what's coming out in future Adobe releases, go to Seagraph. Uh, take a look at a couple of the big tools that they've introduced recently, both the Roto Brush and the Warp Stabilizer. Both of those things had research papers published at Seagraph years before we've seen the products come to fruition. So what we want to do this week is actually bring you a video created by the researchers at University of Wisconsin about how the warp stabilizer technology, or at least the foundation of the warp stabilizer technology works. I think there's been a lot of misinformation in my discussion with people thinking it's some kind of optical flow algorithm, but at heart, it's really dealing with 3D tracking. And I think if you know the technology behind the tool, you're able to better do your job as an artist. You'll know when it works and probably when it won't work on a job. So if you're on set, you can kind of have a pretty good guesstimate if you can truly fix it in post. So let's go ahead and cross that video now that was created by the researchers on the project. Most amateur video is shot by hand, and the result can look remarkably shaky and hard to watch, such as this sequence I shot walking backwards. Such shots are often called tracking or dolly shots, and professionals will capture them using a camera mounted on a rail system or a Steadicam. Most of us, however, have to make do with stabilization software, such as DShaker. Here we see that current software can successfully reduce camera shake, but the result still doesn't look like a motion a professional would capture. The camera still wanders around aimlessly. Here we see our result, which simulates a camera moving along a perfectly linear path with constant orientation. The feel is much more like a classic dolly shot. And that's the goal of our system, to take a normal handheld video and automatically convert it to a video that looks like it was captured along a directed camera path, such as a line, a parabola, 
or any 3D camera motion that is reasonably close to the original. Almost all video stabilization algorithms operate in 2D. Here we show our implementation of 2D stabilization on two sequences. This method tracks a bunch of points, fits a 2D motion model, and then low-pass filters that motion model to create an output. This approach can be very successful in damping shake, but since it has no 3D knowledge of the camera motion, it's not powerful enough to simulate a directed camera path. 3D video stabilization is more powerful. It tries to simulate what the camera would have seen from a 3D output camera path. Unfortunately, current image-based rendering techniques can't handle scene motion, so you get ghosting, as you see here. Our approach begins similarly to 3D stabilization. We use Voodoo, a publicly available structure for motion system, to reconstruct the original 3D camera motion and a cloud of 3D scene points. Then we fit an idealized camera motion to the original, such as a line, a parabola, or just a low-pass filtered version of the original 3D trajectory. Then, we try to simulate what the camera would have seen from this new camera path. However, in order to preserve scene motions, we add the constraint that each output frame is a warp of a single input frame at the same moment in time. This implies that we must simulate an accurate shift in viewpoint using only the content of one image, which is of course impossible. However, we've found that for the purposes of video stabilization, we can fake it with a carefully designed content-preserving warp. For each moment in time, we can project the reconstructed 3D scene points to both the input and output frames. This produces a set of sparse displacements, from the red points to the green points, for each video frame that will guide our warping method. We could just fit a full frame warp to this set of displacements, such as a homography in this example. Notice, however, that the buildings on the left wobble and tilt. This type of warp isn't flexible enough to model motion through a general 3D scene. For this other sequence, we see the buildings and statues shear to the right, and then to the left. Instead, we discretize a spatially varying warp over a quad mesh that tries to preserve local shape within the scene and follow the sparse displacements. The result for these two sequences is now much better. In this visualization, we spiral the viewpoint away from its original for one moment in time. It's pretty clear that our method does not produce an accurate novel view interpolation. However, if we play it again and pause it now and then, each frame looks pretty reasonable until the camera gets too far away. Note that we only ever see this moment in time for one frame in the output. This is really the key insight of our method. For the purposes of video stabilization, we can fake small viewpoint shifts with a content-preserving warp, even though the result is not physically accurate. Finally, along with the linear camera paths already shown, we now give an example of a parabolic path and a path created by simply low-pass filtering the 3D input motion. We now show some more results and comparisons. This first example was shot with a camera with a rolling shutter, which is very challenging for current 2D stabilization software. Our method performs better on this sequence. We now show more results, as well as comparisons to the results of existing methods and commercial software.
Well, that's it for our 2011 coverage here from NAB. We're all a bit exhausted and punched mm -hmm. up. We want to thank everyone that's been involved behind the scenes, friends, people have been helping out. We've had Stu, Tyler, Jimmy, of course, uh, behind the scenes. A ton of people doing stuff and we really appreciate all their help. We also appreciate the response we've had from you guys and the help actually, Jeff, from our sponsors. We've had a bunch of companies that have really uh, helped us here at NAB. Uh, companies like The Foundry, uh, SohoNet, uh, Codex, Adobe. A lot of people have given a lot of stuff and a lot of companies have been very supportive of what we've been trying to do here. So thanks to everybody for that. Um, we're going to obviously be continuing with FX Guide TV. There's going to be some more stuff coming out from uh, that we've recorded here that'll be going both into FX PhD and into FX Guide. And of course, we have more things like this planned for later in the year. So please keep the feedback coming. We always like to hear from you. And Jeff, thank you. Thank you. Until next time, guys, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.